Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you here and a special shout out to our friends at our Esplanade campus in Downers Grove and to those of you who are connecting with us online today in worship. Uh, we are uh, thrilled to be together today as we plunge back into one of the most extraordinary stories of the Bible, one in which uh, God reveals the glory of who He is and what He can do in human lives. And so I just want to invite you to pray with me for a moment, and then I want to take us uh, into the conversation of the day. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have brought us here to this seat we're sitting in. And we dare to believe that you have a purpose for that. And so we ask you to fill us up, to speak to us a word of encouragement or of challenge, or to give us a vision, Lord, for what it is that you are doing, uh, for who you are, and for how we might more fully live into your good purposes. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were writing a job description for God, if it fell upon you to define what it is you think God should be about, what would you list as his very first major responsibility? I would be sorely tempted to write down this. Number one, show up when people really need help. Now, now I know that has a little bit of arrogance to it. I mean, I know there's a sense in which uh, definitely I'm nobody to be telling God what to do. But I think a lot of us feel, if we're perfectly honest, that if, if God was really who the Bible says he is, then, then coming to people at the time when they really need his help would be one of the major, maybe first things that would be on the list of someone who is truly loving and powerful. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if God was just some kind of alien being that simply uh, started the chain reaction that led to this universe, or if God was some alien being that simply came to, the, to this planet and seeded life and then flew away, we would not have those kinds of expectations of it. Uh, we'd actually be grateful that he just started the whole thing in the first place. We'd, we'd be very, very surprised if he took any kind of further personal interest in what it was that he had spun out. We'd actually be shocked if he ever showed up. You'd be absolutely blown away if amongst the billions and billions of, of lives on this planet Earth at just this particular moment, that God called you by name. But if the Bible is actually accurate when it says that God truly knows and likes human beings, not just as a species, but individually and personally, if it's true that God has the power to make all things new, then it's a different deal we're talking about, I'm convinced. You'd think that when somebody cries out for guidance or for companionship or for relief from pain or rescue from calamity, then, then God would do his job one. He'd be faster than Uber or Prime, Amazon Prime in, in delivering what was particularly needed. He'd be speedier and more powerful than Black Panther and Wonder Woman and Superman combined when it came to bringing help. 
The one thing you would actually never expect God to do is exactly the thing that we see him doing in this story we're looking at today. Let me take you to John chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, we should stop right there because, frankly, we have already been given almost everything we need to know about what happens next. Clue number one is the name of the main character here, this guy, Lazarus. The name Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which literally means one whom God helps. So we know where this story is going. And clue number two is that he is not just any Lazarus. There were lots of Lazaruses in ancient times. This particular Lazarus is the one from Bethany. He is the brother of Mary and Martha. He lives in the house that Jesus regarded as his personal Airbnb. Like there is no other home in all of Israel where Jesus stays more often, according to the New Testament, than in that house in Bethany. So to reinforce this particular connection, the gospel writer adds in parentheses, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This is the same family that so loved Jesus, they poured themselves out to serve him and honor him and glorify him. In other words, Jesus enjoys not just a passing relationship with his family. These folks are incredible intimates with him. Mary has cooked for him. Or Martha's cooked for him. Mary sat at his feet listening for hours upon hours. Their brother Lazarus is very likely one of Jesus' very best friends. He's like a brother to Jesus, Lazarus is. I remember one night uh, many years ago, I got a, an incredible phone call um, that clarified my relationship with my own brother. I'm going to come back to that story in a moment. But I, I understand the passion that is voiced in the next line of the text. When we hear, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And you know where this is going. You know what you would do if one of your siblings sent word to you that, that, that your very best friend was in serious trouble. Your brother was in trouble. I remember that call that I got that night in California that my brother way out in New York City had been in a terrible car accident. And I want to tell you, I dropped the phone. I, I grabbed just the minimum no th number of things I could stuff in a bag. And I was at the airport. I was at that counter begging for the folks there to get me on the next flight. And if they had let me through into the cockpit, I'd have told the, the captain to step on the gas. I, I, I've never wished so much they had that whole beaming thing worked out as I did on that particular night when my brother was in such trouble. Any of us who have ever been in profound personal need, any of us who have ever had somebody that we loved that was in a tremendous place of need or distress. We just naturally surge with hope when we read the very next line in this story. Because the text says, when he heard this, Jesus said, 
This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Translation, this is the, the Dan Meyer Revised Standard Version. This is what is, I think is being suggested here. You can relax. You can take courage. This story ends very, very well. Sickness and death will not win. The God who likes human beings, who has the power to transform uh, the, the bad into the good, this God will be glorified by how this story turns out. And the Gospel writer John adds a triple exclamation point of hope to the whole narrative by reminding us once again, and I quote, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. John is stressing here that Jesus has not just one, not just two, but three compelling reasons to do what we just know in our hearts has to be or ought to be God's job number one. To show up when people really need help. But this is where the story crashes. Spoiler alert here. It's like when the amazingly loving father in the television program, This Is Us, manages to, to survive the terrible fire that overtakes the family home. And just when we're rejoicing, oh, that it's all gonna be okay, he dies of something else, of a complication, uh, leaving us just mind-blowingly devastated. It's like when the pure-hearted hero in Game of Thrones is, is suddenly betrayed by someone he counted as a loyal brother and actually multiple brothers. It's like when something much more personal to your own life and to your own program goes from the shining light of hope to the total darkness of despair in an instant and the loss is made all the more crushing because you think to yourself, it should have been preventable. It, it shouldn't have happened. And John's gospel simply puts this reality like this. Verse six, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? He hears that Lazarus, that Lazarus is sick and he decides just to chill for two more days. I cannot only imagine what the disciples are thinking as they watch this pattern. I, I'm, I'm, this is speculation, but you know, how many complete strangers have they watched Jesus heal? How many people have they seen Jesus drop his regular agenda for and, and, and go over and, and address a particular need for? I mean, the woman at the well and Zacchaeus in the tree and the woman that touched him in the, in the uh, crowd and blind Bartimaeus by the roadside. I mean, how many stories of the Jesus just dropping things to go after the need of somebody, a stranger, have they heard? And Lazarus is sick and Jesus says, well, let's wait a while. There's nothing in the scripture record that suggests that Jesus had tons of other more important things to do. 
Uh, it's possible that everything in the heart of Jesus wanted to go to Lazarus, but his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit said, it's not yet your time. It's not yet the fullness of time. All we really can say for sure is that by the time Jesus said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea, that's where Bethany was, let us go back to Judea. By the time Jesus gets around to saying this, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is, is completely dead. So when we read a story like this, it, it just kicks up some of the larger questions we have about why God tarries at times when it would be so much, we think, in his nature to offer the help that ought to be job one, we feel, for any truly loving and truly powerful kind of God. I think that's a fair question. Why does God do this? And I also think that answering that particular question has to be done in the light of an overarching reality that is not yet evident in this particular story, at least not to those living through it. The reality that we're gonna explore in much greater detail in these weeks ahead is that Jesus does heal Lazarus. I mean, heal with a capital H. Um, he does heal Lazarus, but it's not on Mary's schedule, it's not on Martha's schedule, it's on God's schedule. Jesus brings help to Lazarus in the most dramatic way possible, and I'm gonna tell you more about that in a moment. I remember a night many, many years ago, I was just a little boy, and um, my half-brother Andrew, who was about two and a half, three years old, uh, was lying almost comatose uh, in a hospital bed in Westchester County, New York. And uh, he had contracted um, meningitis. And uh, I, I will never forget the feeling of just watching him just lying in that bed, this little tender precious life, just hovering on the edge between life and, and death. And I just remember praying, God, all of us in the family, God, do something. Even those of us that weren't, you know, God people, we were praying, you know. We, we knew that we were out of our depth. We needed a power from beyond ourselves, and we just prayed, please do something. But Andrew just seemed to get worse. I remember that night. I remember another day, this summer, our family was vacationing in Bermuda. And as we were all gathering there, I caught a, a glimpse for the very first time of my brother Andrew, who I hadn't seen in a long time. He's six foot four inches tall. He's strong and strapping and handsome. He, he's so full of life. And as I looked at him in that particular moment, I thought of that night that he lay dying, but the memory, that uh, earlier memory, is really only a fleeting one now. It's been overwritten by the glory of who Andrew has become. Now I recognize that there are people listening to me today, some of you, who did not see that kind of outcome to your personal story. You, you, your loved one or you didn't survive in the way that you'd hoped for that dark night. Well, there are plenty of people in my life that haven't either. Let me be clear about that. 
But I believe God when he says, I'm choosing to believe God when he says that a new springtime and a glorious summer is coming for all who put their trust in him. And with the Apostle Paul, I consider that our present sufferings, and a bunch of us have got some serious suffering going on, but I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, writes Paul in Romans chapter 8, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. What Paul is saying here is that we're in the birth canal right now. That, 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 we're, that we're being squeezed and stressed and there's pain and difficulty. Understandably, yes, that is what this season is, uh, involves. But it's the process by which we emerge into an even larger reality. One of glorious hope. And when Jesus comes, when Jesus does come in his own time, the loving power that he is going to bring to heal us and this whole creation will leave us standing and grinning like my brother Andrew as if sorrow and death had never happened at all. It will completely overcome the stain and the scar of anything that went before. So the real question I think is, if we believe this, how do we live in the meantime? I mean, how do we cope when Jesus, from our own vantage point, seems appallingly late in fixing all the stuff that needs fixing? Uh, from our vantage point, seems so tardy in bringing about the good for which all of us long. Some of us right now are, are watching sickness or death enfolding us or a loved one. And that isn't easy. Uh, the healing or the release from suffering that you need or somebody you know needs is not coming like we'd like. Others of us are waiting. We're waiting for that child to grow up. We're waiting for that spouse to finally change. We're waiting for that job to materialize. We're waiting for that, that longed-for love to walk into our life and recognize us we're waiting in all of these different ways. And even if you believe that there is some kind of ultimate redemption out there, as I do believe there is, how do you go on without being destroyed by the anxiety and the discouragement and the despair that kicks up when Jesus is late from our vantage point? Well, I, I've come to believe that one strategy is to view this waiting time as an essential discipline of spiritual formation. Let me just sort of put a fine point on that for us. It's an essential practice. It's a critical, powerful practice that if we lean into it, can reshape our very soul. Um, true confession, and I know that my wife will verify this for you, I have never become entirely accustomed to the fact that God is God and I am not. Um, I, really, I really have got convictions about the way things ought to be run. Uh, I have strong opinions about 
what the agenda should look like. I frequently feel like I knew, know best. I want to control things according to my sense of the plan or my sense of timing. I do not like to see my agenda delayed or deferred, but I am slowly over the course of time starting to see that having to wait is actually a gift. It's a gift. It's one of those everyday sacraments that reveal to us life as it actually is. Life as it really is. Each time we wait, whether it's something for something small like a traffic light or a train to go by or something large like the crisis, this huge crisis to be over, each time we do that, we're being invited to sit with the reality that much of life is out of our hands and always has been and always will be. Uh, for all of our attempts to structure and schedule life and other people, we are dependent cre creatures. We depend upon realities and relationships larger than ourselves, and we are ultimately reliant upon the salvation and providence of God. A God who is truly God. We can spend our lives shaking our fist or tapping our feet at this truth. I mean, lots of us spend a good deal of our time doing that. I'm, I'm included in that, but I'm convinced, and this is the key part, so please tune into this, that only as we receive more of life as a grace given rather than as a possession taken can we find peace. To see it as a grace given, every bit of it, rather than something we clench and take is the pathway to peace. So here's an encouragement. Resolve to treat times of waiting as an invitation to trust God. To, 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 to put God's plans first. His glorious intentions, whether we understand them or not, as the number one. Regard the unusual and the uncertain as an opportunity to just wait and see if God is not actually up to something even better than we could imagine. And let the very way that we wait for Jesus to show up or to wait for whatever it is that you may be anticipating now become our own personal declaration of faith in the heart and the provision of God. You see, the consumer individualistic mentality has overtaken the Christian worldview in our time and corrupted it into something that it isn't anymore. God is just one more self-help strategy in many places. But, but newsflash, God's job number one is not attending to our anxieties and our discomforts. He cares about us, don't get me wrong. But but God's job number one, as Jesus says in this story, is not to relieve our anxiety or our temporary discomfort, but to reveal his glory. His number two purpose is to use that display of his glory to draw people to himself. When I am lifted up, I will draw all to me, says Jesus. And he draws them to himself for the purpose of their ultimate redemption. And if showing up when we actually need help is the best way to accomplish purposes one and two, then he may do that. 
Thankfully, he does sometimes. But if it's not the best way to accomplish one and two, we may have to wait at times. Jesus, in this particular story, is is going to do something amazing. He's going to demonstrate his ability to heal not just a sick man. If he'd gone right away, he'd have been showing what he could do with sick people. He's going to show us the transforming power of God to bring back to life somebody who's been stone-cold dead for four days, multiple days, moldering in the grave. In doing that, Jesus is going to foreshadow the even greater glory of his own death and resurrection. And he's going to foreshadow and show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he does have the power, he alone has the power, to transform human beings, you and me, and bring forth that glorious morning when he arrives to make all things absolutely new. So, the final takeaway, in in my sense of it, is just how important it is to remember that just because we cannot see good things happening does not mean they aren't. Just because from our vantage point we can't see this is obviously good doesn't mean it isn't good uh, in the largest sense. In one of his most famous parables, Jesus uh, says that his followers ought to be like the farmer who, who has no trouble laying aside the plow, laying aside all the labor of the day, and going to bed at night. Trusting that even while he's asleep, even while he's released control, God is at work. A mysterious power is at work. Growing the seed. Night and day, says Jesus in Mark chapter 4, whether the farmer sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And Christian psychologist Gerald May reminds us that God has sown into the very fabric of seasons like winter a mystery like this as something of a reminder to us all about the larger nature of life. May writes, deer and rabbits quiet, fish and frogs and turtles nearly frozen, snakes hold up, summer birds gone away and winter birds now here. Trees black and bare, seeds and cocoons and grubs and cicada larvae and everything underground, deep, deep inside, down and in where you cannot see the life happening. I tell you, life is rich in the time of keeping still. Sap flowing, cells curing, change taking place. In the depths of our winters, he writes, things are going on. Things that we will have no clue of until the spring comes, and perhaps not even then. So, when our hearts cry out, like Mary and Martha, Jesus, where are you? What's taking you so long? What are you doing? Why are you late? Dare to trust that God has an extremely good answer. His answer is, I'm closer than you know. I'm preparing more than you can see. I am 
the glorious Redeemer. And the spring is coming, and summer endless for all those who wait upon me.